You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to My Life in Four Trades. Don't forget to subscribe if you like the conversation. You can also find more in-depth content and interviews with the world's brightest financial minds on realvision.com. Make sure you check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is super angel investor and author Howard Linzon. Howard was a seed investor in Robinhood, and his crown jewel StockTwits, a Twitter for traders, has over 2 million members. Our conversation about investing both for profit and joy was honest and incredibly interesting. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Howard. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. How are you? I kind of thought my life was more (laughs) important than four trades, but this is interesting. It's so much more important than four trades, but we like to benchmark, right? So we can kind of look back and reflect. So before we jump into your four trades, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Uh, You know, I was a good kid. I was a good, good boy. Uh, I just had good instincts around staying out of trouble because, because life was good for me. I was just this sheltered uh, Jewish kid from Toronto. So kind of born on third base, 1965, which was probably a great time to be born as a Jewish kid in Toronto. My dad's pretty successful, so I didn't have to live on the streets. And um, so I would say, my therapist would say not a normal childhood, but it, it felt normal to me. Why would your therapist say not a normal childhood? My parents are nuts. And I fled to the United States when I was uh, 1920 and to Arizona. But uh, I have uh, one wife, 25 years to celebrate our 25th year anniversary, two kids. I own and operate two millennials, I like to tell people. And I have one dog. And we split our time between Phoenix and Coronado, San Diego, Coronado. Fantastic. We, we were there uh, not too long ago. Beautiful place. Why'd you go to the U.S.? What made you take that leap? Um, son. The, uh, my, parent, my dad, uh, my parents had a home in Arizona. So most Toronto people that can afford to travel to the sun go to Florida, you know, East Coasters, like New York. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, liked the desert. And the first time I came to the desert, I'm like, what? I was a bit of a golfer or I loved golf. So when I came to Arizona, I'm like, I'm going. I went to an ASU football game. I was probably 11 years old. And I was like, who wouldn't want to go here? And so when I was 11, I decided I'm moving to the States. I like it. That's making a goal and sticking with it. Yeah, I was. uh, I ended up going to do my MBA at, at Arizona State University, Harvard of the West. And then there's a another school called uh, Thunderbird. It's an international management school, so I went there as well. I didn't know that it existed, but when I was in ASU, they had like a dual master's program, and it was a really, really great experience. So how did you get into the business of finance and trading? Like, When did it first come on your radar? It came on my radar because I was in the U.S. doing my degrees, and I really needed to figure out how to stay in the U.S., 
and the Gulf War had broken out in 1990, I believe, and there was a savings and loan crisis, and, and Phoenix was kind of the epicenter. It was, a jo- it was a pretty nasty recession. You know, bank stock, you know, we're talking about tech stocks today in a decline and, and stuff, crypto mm-hmm. going to zero and blow-ups. But in 1990, 91, Phoenix was kind of dead center of the savings and loan crisis, and banks, like bank bought, like banks were trading at like pennies. Um, so the country was in a serious crisis, but the war, Iraq war, I think the 90 Iraq war and the markets kind of went nuts coming out of that recession. I needed to stay in the U.S. I had no real skills. And, you know, back in the good old days before the internets, you'd open up the Arizona Republic and start circling jobs. You know, you went to the classified section. So I had a dual master's degree and no green cards. So I'm just circling jobs, sales jobs in the newspaper. And that's how I became a stock. I didn't want it. I didn't know what even, I wasn't really into stocks or money. I just felt, ooh, stockbroker. And I became a stockbroker. That's amazing. So I think that takes us to your first trade, right? You're So you're a broker. And back then you're cold calling people, right? Yeah, I had my dual master's degree and I got a rotary phone and, you know, a little case where they put cards and you write names on cards and it was just like, get your license, uh, get on a suit and start calling people, you know, and uh, it was brutal. I mean, what a rude awakening, but I needed to be sponsored, right? I need, and so it was, it was a hack, you know, to get sponsored for a visa to become potentially a citizen. At the time, I wasn't married, so the only way to stay in the country was to get sponsored. And the firm that hired me, Epler, Guerin, and Turner, um, uh, sponsored me as on a visa. So I just did whatever they said I was doing. So you're you're like mid twenties here. Yeah, mid twenties. You know, wearing a suit. It's 120 degrees in Arizona. It's not that good a life. <laughs> And there's just, you got to make the calls, right? And you got to, and you got to deal with sec, you got to try and get the boss on the phone to sell him a stock. And back in the day, it was like Blockbuster and Compact Computer and Bank of Boston. And, you know, I would fill out, you know, and I didn't know anything about anything. Um, so it was just really a rude awakening to the world. You know, I think we all make fun of millennials today. We all like to make fun, you know, I have two kids. And we get, every adult likes to make fun of these millennials today. Well, I was at one point a millennial and I knew nothing. I absolutely knew nothing. And you're selling stock to people. You're making stock recommendations, no So less. the world has come a long way for, it's just funny to hear each generation think the next generation below them is clueless. I literally was clueless yeah. and I turned out okay. So, uh, but what a horrific, it was just horrific. I, I made the best of it, and I was pretty good at it. So how did this become your one of your best trades? Why does this stand out? How did that sort of drudgery of calling these strangers work out for you? Yeah, so picking up the phone and cold calling for dollars is not easy. But uh, one of the calls turned out to be a kid who had a startup called The Grip. And when I went to call on him, he I loved the product that he was selling. And he, it was a startup you know, pre-internet startup. And he had this squeeze ball called the grip. It was a stress ball. And he ended up not having money, like even though it looked like he had money from his article that was written about him and he needed money. So it became my first angel investment. 
And I was so excited to like quit my job. You know, it was more exciting than cold calls, right? If I'm going to cold call, do it for something I'm passionate about. And so I cobbled together some money from my mom and wrote a check, you know, before there was angel investment, I don't know what they called it. And I was the schmuck that wrote a check and it got me into this business called The Grip and it became like the pet rock. It became like a home run. It became not a unicorn, but it became like this incredible business. And I left the business of brokerage for about seven years. And I actually, we were so successful, I became the family office for all of us and learned the stock market that way. So brokers started, within two years, brokers were calling me because we had so much money and I started trading stocks, but I was on the receiving end. It was just like Gordon Gecko. I was getting calls from people and learning the stock market that way. This is incredible, though, because you're supposed to be pitching this guy. He yeah. somehow pitches you uh, to invest your money when you're 20. What made you think that? What made you do this? Sounds like it sounds like a, a million to one shot. What made you think this could be successful? Or were you just was it just lucky because you were so desperate to get out of the other job? No, no, no. no. I mean, I, I, again, I like to joke around. But you create your own opportunities. I'm sure, yes. I mean, listen, I opened up the newspaper. I saw this kid holding the product. I made my cold call. I went down to his office. It was a disaster of a meeting from the sense of he was not going to be a client. But I loved the product. And we, he was a young guy who's younger than me. And he didn't know anything from anything. And I said, well, if I invest, can I come work here and like help grow this thing? Right? It was him and his sister, and Mark Scatterday and his sister, Kathy. And it just became the greatest, you know, and I had my MBA. It's just like Rodney Dangerfield in, in, in the movie. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, but I had an MBA. I walked into his office. He goes, yeah, I need help. And we built this incredible company over the next six, seven years. How long did it take for you to know that it was a winner? I walked in and I knew it was a winner. The only thing that made it not a winner is, I, and I learned from this, is I didn't have control. It was his company. And he was a drunk sailor. He was like this kid who had this golden product. It's no different than like Zuckerberg, except there was no internet and QVC. We were selling millions and millions of this squeeze ball. And he was spending all his money on like cars and boats. Like he was just like a young, rich kid. And, and I was just trying to keep the wheels on the bus. So it was like, it was a nightmare in that it wasn't my company and he could do what he wanted with his money. But it was like, you know, it was just like being the a conciliary of like a drunk sailor. It was really just the greatest experience you could have because you learned everything about business, billing, receivable, shipping, manufacturing. We were doing all of this. And I just got the greatest education of my life. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com so you have this successful period the business is successful you're running the money now. You're managing your money. You're operating as a home office. Correct. So this takes us to your second trade. And so you formalize this as a hedge fund and start a brokerage. So you, you actually pivot back into the business you left. Correct. 
really bad trade, but led to 10 horrific years. But uh, really, really, I took everything that I learned and did the opposite and became miserable. So he was driving me so Wait, nuts. so tell me, when you start this, how do you make the transition? Because I wasn't a true owner of the business. These were back in the days of like S-Corps. There was no LLCs, right? People just, if you had a profitable business, you floated all through. I don't think he was smart. Anyway, forgetting all that, he was just running this business as a cash machine. And I was the MBA going, we're idiots. We have a Duraflame log or it's going to be competition where our margins are going to go away. I was like the, the, the suit that was driving the family nuts. And we were killed. You know, I was like, no, this is how we got to run the business. And so I just, it wasn't my business. So I said, why don't I just spin off and, and start a, a hedge fund? You can be a, a customer. Because back then, being an entrepreneur, the internet was just starting in 97, 98, really. And and to be an entrepreneur then meant have a hedge fund. Charge two and 20 and, and eat what you kill. And believe me, hedge funds were like being an entrepreneur back then. So um, that's what I did. I was It was horrific. And I mean, it was horrific. The minute I started, there was a long-term capital management crisis. And then you had the internet mm. boom and the internet bust. And I didn't know what I was doing. Like when I was managing this money in the 90s, there was like a semiconductor boom. There was like a drug stock boom. There was like a tech boom. And the minute I go to become a hedge fund, it was like Asian contagion, long-term capital management, uh, the internet boom, and then the internet bust. I mean, it was just like a, it was like machine gun fire to my forehead. And I didn't really have experience, right? I, you know, and so it was just learning as well, I went. Well, it's interesting because you go into this, though, and you must be feeling pretty confident because you had this hugely successful business. You learned all about the business. So what were you feeling before you started it? Did you think you had a good shot at making this successful? Were you pretty confident? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and it was successful. I mean, people liked me. I didn't blow anybody up. But this led to my bad trade. I made the mistake, you know, being a hedge fund's one thing, but I, I hooked up with a, a partner, a friend of mine, an older man who had the bright idea to say the easiest way to save costs if you're running a hedge fund is to own a broker dealer. And that way you can lower your costs of commissions and, and control, you know, control the uh, flow. And so we started a broker dealer, which was just a disaster. And running a broker dealer in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s through the crash is hard enough, but we had hired uh, a head of compliance and one of our partners who ended up uh, stealing from the business. So not only was it a headache to run the business, we ended up in a really big problem post uh, 2000. Uh, this person, Scott Tominaga, uh, we hired him. He was an, an NASD um, audit person. So you think we were hiring the right guy, but he ended up uh, running up about a $8 million error account, which we're responsible for. And then when the, when the gig finally was up, our business was, bank, was bankrupt. I woke up one day, and you realize the scam. And I went from successful hedge fund manager to bankrupt uh, brokerage. What did you, what were you feeling at that time? Well, it was a really life-changing moment in that you're out of business. Like it's about who, let's, 
let's figure out you got to call the SEC and the NESD. So that's not a good feeling. And you got to just come clean right away saying, you know, Houston, we have a problem. And then you've got to call bankruptcy attorney. You got to protect yourself, but you got to come clean. You know, it's not fun calling the SEC mm. and saying, I think we have a problem. And then confronting the partner that was stealing and dealing with the just the wind down and mess. It's almost the opposite of what you were. You built a business before. Now you're dismantling one. Yeah, dismantling it. And there was like the post-internet era. And it was just a mess. Did you take any of this personally? Did you think like, maybe I'm not good. Maybe I was just lucky before. Maybe maybe I don't have what it takes. Or did you understand or think that this was circumstantial, like bad circumstances? Well, at the time, you're just fighting, right? And you're just hoping you're... Your family stays together and you're hoping that, no, because you're just thinking about surviving. You hate the person that got you into the mess, but that person's going on with their life. And, you know, when people screw you over, they're not thinking about you. You're thinking about them, which goes to any bad trade around people. They don't care. You know, it's, it, if, it's, if you're dealing with a sociopath, they don't care about you. They leave a mess and mm. they move on. So I think... Cleaning up a mess really changes how you think about the world. And um, the internet came It's humbling. It's very humbling. I wasted 10 years. You know, I had no extra skills. And luckily for me, you know, the internet came along. And even though I was rather old at the time, I was probably 40 before I got inspired to do something, YouTube came along and I immediately, as soon as I saw YouTube and cat videos, I go, I'm going to, I'm going to get involved in YouTube. So this is your third trade. Your third trade is, I don't know if you left the hedge fund industry, but it's your kind of pivot to embracing all things that are the internet, right? The trade to expand your horizons and say, cats and YouTube, I'm in, I'm all in. So what did that look like? Did you have a plan? Yes. So I had this idea. I grew up in Toronto and I did stand-up comedy as a kid. Not well. And I had this idea that I was going to build and, and running a hedge fund, <clears throat> I would watch CNBC all the time and I would find myself hating on CNBC and going, why is this idiot an expert in all these things? You know, CNBC just was my nemesis. And growing up in Toronto as a fake comedian or a wannabe comedian, we had this show called Second City with John Candy and Joe Flaherty and Eugene Levy and yeah. legends of comedy. And it was a spoof of a of a cable network. Second City wasn't like Second City in the US. They had a show called Second City TV and it was like a, a running gag of like a, a film of a cable network. And it was just this hokey Canadian cable network with all these great comedians. It was fucking hysterical. Anyways, I had this idea that I was going to create CNBC on YouTube, right? And just reinvent CNBC on the internet. Okay, so that was my big vision. But but you have no media experience, no experience. before this. Nothing. Like, Just like you staring at you on Riverside. I was staring at YouTube going, wait a minute. I can go and create a whole show for, for like I'd have to pay to the actors and everything. But I'm going to go create CNBC 24-7 on YouTube. And um, I cold emailed Fred Wilson, who is a legendary uh investor. He had inv I didn't know at the time he invested in street.com, but he's a big New York media investor. And I pitched him the idea. I had been commenting on his blog, blah, blah, blah. 
And he loved the idea and he invested. But he doesn't really know you, right? And Fred introduced me to like six of his friends, like Brad Feld, who's a legendary investor, and Roger Ehrenberger. These are all good friends of mine still. So I had like the, and Mark Pincus. So I had like the, the, un, the like the murderer's row of investors uh, for this idea to create uh, CNBC on YouTube. Who also didn't know you. Right. Who also didn't know you. Well, they knew me from like tweets and I had a blog. I was like getting into the internet. But um, they took a chance. That's what angel investing is. I don't know. And raised $600,000 for this idea called Wall Strip. Hired a a group of people on uh, Craigslist, actors, washed up actors or wannabe actors and actresses. And CBS bought the show six months later. So it was the first YouTube show ever acquired by a major media network. So... Even though we really, it was kind of a show about nothing. Uh, it was kind of like Larry David meets CNBC meets Saturday Night Live. We became the very first uh, YouTube show acquired by a major media network, which was CBS. And it was just an incredible trade. Do you think that love of humor has helped you throughout? Is that something that's always been present? Yeah, I mean, that's my superpower is that people, it's disarming. There's two things. I loved Jim Cramer when he came out, right? It was like, he was for the little guy. He was like the one person that sounded smart to me on CNBC. And he wrote for Smart Minds back in the 90s, right? He was like mm-hmm. the scrappy, even though he was Harvard, blah, blah, blah. In hindsight, it was just, that was so inspiring. And then I was so disenchanted with CNBC and Cramer by 2001 and the yelling and the, and the stock stuff. And the fact that they took themselves too seriously was my trick. I always Mm -hmm. could make fun of myself. And I think all these people, what makes CNBC so intolerable and finance so intolerable is this facade that they know something. And that's been my trick. And I think people put up with my nonsense because I make fun of myself more than... And this is all day on FinTwit. This is all day on StockTwits. This is all day on Reddit. This is all day still on CNBC. These fucking people mm. talking out of both sides of their ass. And we're seeing it in crypto. Mm. And it's all the same nonsense. It's fear and greed, fear and greed, human emotion. And I think finance is kind of a comedy. And uh, so that's been the trick. And that's what Wall Strip was. And I think that's kind of my lucky edge that keeps working. And I think Raul gets it at Real Vision. I'm an investor. Being able to take a piss or whatever the English say about yourself. If you come at yourself first, it's very hard to be attacked. I think the jacks of the world and the evs, the people that were in social media, the Zuckerbergs, they have, they don't. Maybe it's not their fault. They literally think that they're special. And it may be not their fault. Maybe They just don't know. Elon Musk, at least, as weird as he is, he's got a sense of humor. You know, like he's an idiot and he's crazy maybe, but he has a sense of humor. Like he does stuff that makes, that's disarming. And I think people need that. Why do they need it? Why do people Polarizing need Polarizing people works for audience growth. Ah. I don't care about, I'm never going to please everybody. I have a very niche world, but the niche world is important. I don't have a huge audience because people like screaming. That's something that like, if you look at Fox, what worked for them was polarization. 
And polarization is a great way to grow audience. It cuts off half your audience, but it really gets the other side watching. You, they don't like you, but they watch you. I am vanilla. People go, oh, he's funny, but that's not scalable. Well, well, polarization and sensa- sensationalizing, right? Sensationalizing. Yeah. I don't sensationalize things. anything other than and that, making. I think with financial media, that's a big. Um, Correct. If it's your money, you're going to lose it, or you're going to win it all, and you know, there's it's it's very extreme. Um, I'm constantly looking for smart people, and so that's that's a very narrow thing. People like to just stick in their lane, right? And that's why people get mad at other people for staying in their lane. I like to make sure I know what's going on in every lane. And very few people want that. Have you always been like that? I don't know. But, I mean, it just interests me. And I don't want to – I'm not looking to have 10 million followers. Um, I'm looking to enjoy my life and be successful. And what works for me is not to be polarizing. So Wall Street was a very silly, funny show. And it was a great trade. And so, so is sticking in your people stick in their lane because it's comfortable, though, right? Like to, exactly. So I am so scared of staying in my lane. Like we're seeing it in tech stocks now. What? What am I missing? I'm very curious. Like so, I'll talk to Raúl. I'll talk to commodities people. I know that I'm not going to learn commodities, and I know I'd, I'm not interested in them. But I don't want to get run over by a tsunami of a bear market in case it's a ten-year thing. So I'm just constantly, I'm nervous Nelly, and I'm very curious, and I'm Canadian, so I'm risk averse, and I don't want to blow up. So I'm never going to be a, a billionaire, I'm never going I'm to be co- a billionaire, but I don't want to blow up because I've seen what blowed up is. I was blowed up in 2000, right? But would you really say you're risk averse? Oh, you- tremendous. Tremendously. Somebody who cold calls people, yeah, asks for that's money. That's survival. That's instinct. That's survival. Being an entrepreneur, starting multiple businesses, that doesn't sound like somebody who fits into the risk averse. Well, I think people have a misnomer of what an entrepreneur is. Some people do it out of fear. And I believe, and that's what leads to a lot of entrepreneurs. There's a book out right now by the Bonobos founders. We're past, we, we can be manic depressive. We could be doing it out of anxiety and fear because we're scared of failing. So focusing so narrowly on what the thing that we want to do is some form of avoidance, right? We tell ourselves that this will work. We tell our wives, we tell our loved ones that this will work. And that's why so many founders are depressed, you know, much like comedians. They, they're focusing on one little thing, thinking that everybody else wants it. And it's more avoidance. It's not so much taking risk. It's more about just being scared. And that's the misnomer. All these entrepreneurs get this. And this is what happened in the tech boom. We coddle these entrepreneurs like they're geniuses. They're not. They're just people and they have their own anxieties and their own fears. And if you tell them they're God, guess what? You end up, they act like God. And that's the danger. And we have to start, you know, realizing a lot of these entrepreneurs are just regular people that suffer. What do they say? Dentists have a high suicide rate. Why? Like, let's look into that. A lot of the stuff you read is that dentists have this fear of uh, because they don't want to run a business. They want to practice dentistry and they end up dealing with the government and, and law. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so being an entrepreneur is, is this misnomer that we're geniuses and that we're these risk takers. No, I, I think, I, OK, you can call me a risk taker. I'm just giving you the other side. Oh, 
it's a it's a fascinating take, and, and it's an honest take. Like I, they, and I said, it, it really upsets me that they treat these kids. And we're at the end of the stage. We need we need different types of founders right now. We're at the end of the stage where you coddle these kids and you think they're geniuses. No, to build a business like Mark did with my grip, and I did at Wall Street, are all different types of of fear and greed and anxiety. And it's a lot of a lot of us are swashbucklers, but a lot of us are just really narrow lane people, and we don't want to like deal with reality. And luckily, other people see what we built and either buy it or adopt it, and that's it. The internet just helped find doppelgangers all around the world in a much neater way, and everybody thinks they're geniuses, but no, the internet was a platform that allowed very narrow things to become broad. And I think we're at the end of this congratulatory phase where everybody deserves a balloon and a lollipop and a trophy and realize that building a business is hard. Building a scalable, profitable mm. business is still hard. And, you know, we got to get back to work. Do you feel that most of the founders are, I mean, we hold them up as these geniuses with this, you know, disruptive idea who are going to revolutionize. Do you think most of them are just scared and anxiety ridden? Is that more prevalent than we understand it to be? I mean, I love Twitter and stock tips, which I created. So I think we all have a microphone and we all get to comment on everything. So I don't know. I just think there's no box. I think you know, whether it's a female founder or a male founder or a minority founder or a genius engineer or just a good entrepreneur, they come in all shapes and sizes. But generally, it comes from a founder that is a lot less genius and swashbuckling as the media portrays them. And that's just the way media does. Media builds you up and then media takes you down. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, your fourth trade is interestingly one of your worst and one of your best, and that is after sort of pivoting and selling and being in media, you go back into investing, your, which you've done all along, but you're an angel investor. Um, so talk to me about this because it involves sort of who you invest with and what you invest in. Um, and it ends up in Robinhood. But talk to me, why, this, why is this both your best and worst trade, the fourth trade? Well, it's my life now. So it's like I'm stuck. It's everything I do. And we have to be very careful about what we do because we are not, these are not public markets. So you buy a stock and the founder does something stupid or they miss a quarter. It's off your sheets. You may uh, have some grief or you may talk about it for years and like you're like, like this show, your best and worst trade, but really it's off your sheets. Like it's a money transaction. You buy it, you sell it. Okay. Uh, unless you're Carl Icahn, but I'm saying in 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 the in generally you buy or sell a stock, right? You're not dealing with the management. Okay. In the angel market, you're investing for ten years, whatever. And you know, you make an investment, you write a check. It's seven to ten years. So those people that you now are working with, so you now have an extended family of people that you're working with. And I don't think a lot of people really take that seriously, right? They're, oh, we'll write a check and we'll get rich. 
And, uh, but no, that's not the way it works. I had this unique edge by starting Wall Street and having this unique view about CNBC and Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal and CBS and, and Twitter obviously inspired me to start stock twits. So I started to see the world a lot differently. And so when I met Yoni Itaro in Israel and I met uh, Baiju and Vlada Robinhood, uh, the world hated stocks in 2000, after 2008. The world was like, Wall Street's a scam. Oh, yes, they yes, did. So, so the venture capitalists at the time were zigging. They were like all trying to copy Vanguard. So it was Wealthfront and Betterment. Everybody wanted to build a robo-advisor to compete with Vanguard. And I really, as much as I believe that Vanguard's an incredible company in business, I was like, what are the VCs thinking? Like, Vanguard's not disruptible. But, you know, the last innovation we had in stocks was Yahoo Finance and and see, everything was so stale in E-Trade. Like, there was nothing new. And you're coming out of the 2008 crisis. Bitcoin was a white paper, but no one was talking about it. So when I discovered eToro and Robinhood, I was like, light bulb. People are going to want to trade. They just, it's never been presented to them in this new mobile form. And so to me, it was an obvious trade to get involved. And I, and I wrote, you know, seed checks uh, into both. And eToro is, you know, eight to $10 billion company today. And Robinhood, even though it's down, I don't know, 70% is still a eight to $10 billion company. So, so when we were writing first checks, the VCs were not interested in these ideas. The VCs were trying to copy Vanguard. Um, today, even though these stocks of in Coinbase are all crashing, everybody wants to be the next Robin Hood, right? So this is the way crowds work, right? Um, and now we should really consider indexing. If you want market returns, if you want to be in the stock market, what's wrong with 10% a year in the end? Like that's what the stock market is. If you want to take more risk, Okay, I'll show you stuff with more risk. That's investing in crazy founders and, you know, trying to make 25% risk. So I have a different opinion myself 15 years later of what the stock market is. When people ask me about what they should do with their money in the stock market, I say, you know what? An index fund isn't that bad uh, because if you want to make 10% a year, that's what you do. You buy the market. And I think what's coming next, obviously, the next trade is, and Tiger was trying to do this, is to try and index the VC market, which hasn't worked out well, uh, as we've seen, and has led to this, you know, part of this boom that's led to a, to a bust, which is all this money was trying to be uh, the vanguard of angel and private markets. So that'll be, that's TBD. But I got lucky, mm. or I found this great trade, which was... Vanguard to be the E-Trade 2.0, like to be the CNBC 2.0. And I think that trade still is going on. I just don't know how long, you know, and it's gone on into crypto and and mm. I don't know the next great trade, but um, we're at the end probably of that great trade. How were you able to look around the corner when everyone else was running in a different direction? And what made you listen to your gut? Okay, this goes back to being an entrepreneur. I don't think I looked around the corner. I have, I think I'm a trend follower, meaning I didn't invent YouTube. But because of all my experience of watching TV and yelling at CNBC by myself and watching Second City and being inspired by David Letterman, I saw YouTube as me being able to create a show on YouTube. 
Right. But what about Robin Hood? Like what? what Robin did, Hood, like what I told trend? you, was I when I saw Twitter. Well, I was an E Trade baby or a Daytech baby in 1999, and all those coming. We, I was part of that Yahoo Finance. 15 minute. We thought we were changing the world when Yahoo Finance was 20 minute delayed quotes. We were trading with 20 minute delayed quotes. So when I saw Twitter and I was like, wait a minute, I could talk to people in real time and get my stock quotes in real time. I thought Twitter was going to be the next Bloomberg. And I still believe it is. They just don't know what they're doing. Um, but that's a whole nother So Robinhood is a version of that. Robinhood should have been part of Twitter. Robinhood, if you're on Twitter and Howard Linton says, I'm buying Apple. This is what stock tweets came out. And, and I came up with the dollar sign, right? So it's dollar sign AAPL. Mm-hmm. If you click on that, it should open up your brokerage account and you should be able to buy Apple. Like Twitter was, and YouTube as TV, a live you know audience, those two things, Twitter and YouTube were an explosion of real time and creativity. Even to this day, they still are inspiring millions of people. That's incredible. 15 years later, you got the iPhone, you've got this mobile generation, you have YouTube, now TikTok, but YouTube and Twitter to this day are still inspiring tens of millions of people to create stuff and to transact in real time. I don't know if you can answer this, but do you still feel that way about Robinhood, the enthusiasm that you did in the beginning based on everything that's transpired? I don't know if you're still, if you if you can comment on that, but. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's an incredible company and an incredible product, but like anything in the world, I'm a seed investor. I can't run a public company. Mm -hmm. I don't want to run a public company. Again, people can take my opinions and get mad at me, but I'm like, I don't know. I know it's hard to run a 5,000 person company remote while COVID's happening. So I'm not judging based on that, but no, I, the company is not Mm -hmm. anywhere related to what I thought it could be or should be. When I wrote the first check, you know, I would have done many different things, maybe good or bad, but that's not for me to say. I'm not the CEO of the company. So so Twitter is a fun place to be an armchair quarterback of 500 companies, right? We all are armchair quarterbacks. This is how you should run CNN. Oh, and by the way, in the afternoon, I'm going to tell you how to run Twitter. And then for evening, I'm going to tell you how to run YouTube. And that's basically Twitter. Everybody's, everybody's a, a lot of people paid, are very good at that. Everybody's on their couch telling you how to run their company. Uh, that's Twitter, the way I see it. Why is this trade? So this trade is obviously very successful financially for you as a seed investor. Why is this period also your worst trade too, though? What What's the dark side of this? The dark side is this 10-year thing. If you're in business with somebody and you don't like them, like I said, if you buy a stock, you can sell it and be done. When you have to do quarterly check-ins and you have to, you know, and, and they're the wrong people, or it's not fun. And um, and people don't realize, they think it's all lollipops and balloons as angel investing. And you're going to get a unicorn and you're going to get rich. And it can happen. I mean, it's happened to me. And I'm not talking people out of it. I just, you these trades are a lot different than like a stock trade. These are like, you work got to be a fiduciary over long periods of time. And so you have to be very careful who you pick as the people that you invest in. And so why I'm saying this trade is over, nothing lasts forever. We are now in a different world. And this goes to, you know, what I'm thinking about daily now is like, I don't want to be the last guy in tech. I'm not saying tech's going away, but the world's different. 
right? We've gone from this globalization period to a deglobalization period. Now we have war in the Ukraine, we have rising interest rates, we have inflation, we have supply chain problems. This is like real stuff. And people have real different problems than they did in 2008, in 2006, in 2014. There's real problems going on, combined with a world that's deglobalizing. And I don't see anybody taking that, or including myself, I want to not get run over by a new trend. And part of my experience, or talking to Raul or other macro people, is like trying to like not get run over by an old trend that's over and try and get aboard some new trend. And as an older person, it's not fun, right? It's not fun to be 56 and have to hope, like reinvent yourself. So I have to make these decisions about what do you do with your time so that you stay relevant and stay motivated, but you have to learn some new things. Like there are new problems in the world. Is it climate? Is it energy? And I'm not interested, is it biotech? And I'm not interested in any of these things, nor do I have the skills to do them. But you can't be in denial that these things are happening. And so, you know, the next act is figuring out how do you take everything you know and be not so much relevant, but like have fun and enjoy your work life while investing in these trends. And I'm trying to figure all that out as we speak. That's so interesting because you could just say, listen, I've I've been really successful. I'm going to continue to do that or maybe even edge back. But you sound like somebody who's seeking. Well, I'm definitely seeking, but I'm older and tired. I'm definitely scaling back because why triple down on something that you think may be over? Uh, you don't want to blow. That's how you blow up is you, you, you have this unique view of the world and you're wrong. You know, the world changes. I'm not saying I am kind of a one trick pony, but now I don't want to blow up this great run that I had. So I'm trying to figure out how to diversify and find the next fun thing. And for me, that's crypto and NFTs. I'm not, I don't have any huge ideas. I'm working on some comedy stuff, but I don't think they're going to be life-changing things. I think we're into this, like in a deglobalized world, do you really need to build a unicorn or can you build a nice business that brings you, you know, some profit and joy? And so I think that's part of this deglobalization is like, okay, not everybody has to have a unicorn and not everybody has to have this business that bleeds money for eight years. There's something to this creator economy and using these platforms and finding some form of like knowledge and joy and like unique experience in these things. And so I think we're headed to that kind of possibility. Or you can go drill holes in the ground and look for the next energy source, which is not interesting to me. Yeah. You, it's so f- interesting because you've had all the success. You have a love of comedy. You have a great sense of humor. And yet I've heard you say, I don't want to blow up. I don't want to blow up a whole bunch of times. Yeah. Those two things seem, why is that so on your mind? Well, if I, I watch a World Series of Poker, let's say, right? And it doesn't interest me, poker. But if you watch, there's different types of poker. But the World Series of Poker, they have to like three or four times during that tournament, maybe more, bet the house, right? They have to bet the pot to get to the next level. It just seems so dumb. Wait a minute, can't these chips be good enough? Like, wouldn't I, can't I just tell somebody I'm out? Like, you know, I'm out. I got a huge stack of chips here. I'd like to check out, please, all four. And that's me. I'm the guy always looking to check out. So maybe I'll never be a billionaire. I think this is, goes to people like being true to like their true soul. And that may include getting properly medicated, whatever it takes to try and be as honest with yourself as possible and then 
checking out sometimes. I'm like, you know, experiencing life and not being a slave to the machine. So I'm kind of lucky to have that perspective, I guess. But maybe I'm wrong. People would say I'm nuts. Go for it. But I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go for it. Listen, I, I think that that honesty and, and thoughtfulness and advice to people is is much needed right now. So I, I appreciate you articulating that. Yeah, my nieces and nephews love it because, you know, I've become their like conciliary of career advice and it's really gives me more satisfaction. I'm like a headhunter for all these young kids and I'm steering them into jobs and you should be in enterprise sales and you should be in media and you should be a, you know, you should go work here. And, you know, so that definitely is is a fun part of, you know, I'm kind of like a, a job placement person. Well, because we have so many companies in our portfolio, yeah. they're all hiring. Like, there's a lot of jobs out there. And so it's pretty exciting. Howard, to- I'm going to send my millennials to you exactly. if you're not careful. Well, that's <laughs> part of yet, my job so. as a VC. Part of my job as a VC is helping yeah. our companies find people. So it's really part of the job. Howard, I have to tell you that I so appreciate your humor and honesty in talking about all this. It's just been fantastic. And I think it's really going to help a lot of people who hear it. Yeah, I hope. I mean, people do like the message because it happened to me. I lived this thing. And there is another side of it, which is just this immense late-in-life joy from like having some sense of accomplishment from it. You don't have to be a billionaire. A good lesson to live by. Howard, this was a delight. Thank you so much for being on My Life of Four Trades. All right, Maggie, this was fun. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.